Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock. Aaron has served as a pastor, a professor, and a chaplain, and he has a keen interest in helping other Christians to think Christianly about all of life. On this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Yeoman, and today we want to talk about what we can learn from woke Marxists. So many of you will be aware that Marxism, cultural Marxism, is on the rise in Canada. And there's a lot of times that we speak out on this podcast about that and in opposition to that. However, today we want to take a different approach and talk about what we can learn from their tactics. And so, Aaron, get us started here. What are some things that stand out to you that we can learn from the, our, our woke cultural Marxists? Well, I think this is a, an important topic because oftentimes we're on the reactionary side of things. We're reacting to the to the federal bills, to the nonsense, to the decisions by school boards, to ridiculous nonsensical posts by fake churches. And we need to continue to do that to speak truth to the lies. But there's also some things that, frankly, I think in many respects, the the wokeites, if we could call them that, the Marxists are outplaying us in terms of strategy. So one of the things that comes to my mind right away is they are very unashamed about their beliefs. And I'd like to see more Christians become unashamed about their beliefs. Now, your beliefs start with, they begin as internalized concepts, things you accept to be true that you have staked your life on. But true beliefs also will leak out in your words, in your actions, in your deeds in public. So I suspect that many Christians would say, well, I'm not, I'm not ashamed about my beliefs. I would just push back and say this. If you have beliefs and your proverbial neighbor doesn't know about those beliefs, are they actually beliefs? Do you actually believe those things to be true just because you have certain concepts tucked away in your mind, but you don't articulate them? If you take two individuals like Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada, or Joe Biden, the president in the USA, they are incessantly posting comments outlining their beliefs. They are unashamedly pro-abortion. They are unashamedly pro-LGBTQ. They are unashamedly statist. They are unashamedly in favor of taking money from working people and giving it to people that don't work. They are unashamed about identity politics. They have grants. You can get a grant just because your skin is dark. In Canada, we have business grants for black entrepreneurs. Now, the government has announced it's coming out with special business grants, entrepreneurial options for people based upon who you sleep with. So if you're part of the quote-unquote LGBTQ community, which isn't a community at all, but that's the language they use, and we're going to talk about language in a bit, you can get money from the government just because of what you do in your bedroom. So they're constantly legislating based upon their beliefs. They bully people and pick on you if you don't align with their beliefs. They send money to their friends. They spell out their beliefs. 
I'm also looking out at the world and I'm seeing a lot of non-Christians increasingly speaking out against the pro-trans agenda, for example. Many people probably have heard the name Chris Sky. I was on a conversation uh, phone call with Chris Sky very early on, maybe in 2020 when we were starting to resist lockdowns. Other than that, I've not seen him at a protest. I He seems to be, he's a real character, I'll just say that. He's a real character in the way he dresses and the way he talks. I don't think, to the best of my knowledge, he's not a Christian. If he is, he's certainly not living like one. But I just noticed Chris Sky, who did this big rant. He's running for mayor of Toronto, completely lambasting child groomers, speaking out against hormone therapy and transgenderism in the schools and the incessant efforts of the educational wing of our government trying to push this cult upon our young people. And I thought, good for him, but he's not a Christian. Where are the Christians doing this? Just do a quick Google search of your local pastors. There hardly any of them post anything. We we have people come to our church that often say to me, I can't believe you address these issues. I'm just not used to it. Well, why wouldn't we? Like these are basic issues of justice and that so many Christians are completely silent. We have church leaders that don't preach on these subjects, that don't warn their people to steer clear of institutions and organizations that are trying to groom children. And the reason for this, Chris, is because in the West, we have privatized our faith and we need to publicize our faith. Or maybe a better way of putting it is publicize our faith to bring it to bear upon the culture within which we live. People might think, well, not, you know, we don't need to do that. We just need to be quiet and peaceful and just wait till we get to heaven. God's going to take care of everything. Well, this is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 33. Whoever denies me before men. That's in the here and now. That's not in the eschatological kingdom. Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Our faith is not a private faith. Obviously, it has private implications. We, we can say we have a personal relationship with God, probably language that's overused in, in the West. But we do have a personal relationship with God. I, I have a personal relationship with God, but we also have a public relationship with God. We are his embassy. We are his church. And so we preach the gospel, the conversion aspect of the gospel, the lordship of Christ aspect of the gospel over all of creation. Read Hebrews 2.8. He's subjected all things under himself, unto himself already. And we speak out against any activity that destroys human life. So one of the values in our church is we talk about being unashamed in our preaching. Well, I'd like more Christians to be unashamed. If you're listening to this, I just want to ask you a simple question. How public are you about your faith? Are you calling out people for the lies? Are you challenging these radical agendas that are trying to sexualize our young people? Or are you just nodding at my podcast? Yeah, I agree. I agree with let let Aaron mm-hmm. say it. Let let mm-hmm. guys like Aaron let, let them, you know, go go do it in public. I just listen to the podcast. No, we, we want you to take this message and proclaim it to the watching world. The left radical antichrist, hedonistic, wokeites, and cultural Marxists are not afraid 
to tell you what they believe, to try to catechize your young people. We need to be more bold and straightforward and unambiguous in our speech. And we can learn that from our opponents. Mm -hmm. Now, I think one of the things I've noticed is they seem to be okay leading the conversation. Whereas, as you mentioned and maybe pointed out, Christians sometimes are okay to answer questions, but don't want to lead the conversation. Do you think that's because of this idea of the privatized faith where it's like, I don't want to just step into a a, a, a space, a Facebook, a Twitter space, and just proclaim to the to the masses truth until I'm asked. There's a lot of factors. There's a cultural factor, right, where it's not cool to be a Christian, but it's cool to be a non-Christian. And we know this. I preached on this on Sunday where mm. if, I, if I'm in a university setting, I'm sitting in a classroom, a philosophy classroom, and I reveal that I'm an atheist, I'm probably going to get a standing ovation or something pretty close to it. If I walk across my university campus or into my place of employment and I have a rainbow flag on, you know, I'm probably going to get people bowing down to me and you know putting palm fronds out, so to speak. If you say you're a Christian, you're not going to get a whole lot of people applauding it. Mm-hmm. You're probably going to get demoted. You're probably going to get ridiculed and mocked at. You're probably going to be called fringe or something like that. So there's a there. We live in an anti-Christian culture and. It's hard to take a stand for Christ if you're a people pleaser. So there's a cultural dimension to this. And that's tied to financial penalties and uh, demotions at work, sort of a social social stigma or, or uh, social discrimination mm-hmm. is, a tied, is tied to being a Christian. There's also a spiritual component to this. We're doing battle with uh, demonic forces and... Um, the world, unregenerate man hates the Lord Jesus Christ and his reign and rule. Have you ever noticed how often non-Christians will say to Christians, oh, you're so judgmental? Yeah. There's, a, there's some truth to that. Now, we believe that judging based upon the word of God is actually fair game. But... Let's say you and I are in relationship and I I never say anything. I never stick my neck out and say, hey, Chris, this is what I believe about A or B or C. I I, I never proactively tell you what I believe. But every time you speak, I critically analyze it. I critically analyze it. I critically analyze it. I critically analyze it. Over time, you're going to think, man, this guy's kind of judgmental. But in a two-way relationship, you're going to make declarations. I'm going to make declarations. You're going to assess them. I'm going to assess them. One of the reasons why Christians seem so judgmental is simply because they're so reactionary. We're constantly judging what the world is doing. We're not necessarily that great in proactively proclaiming the full gospel of Jesus Christ. And so you can understand if all, if the only time we put up our hands is when we're opposed to what the opponents of Christ are saying, we're going to look judgmental. Do we need to do that? Yes, we do need to judge sin. Jesus did it. So we need to continue to do that. But we need to add to that proactive communication to our people and to the world around us what the Bible says about all aspects of life, starting with salvation, but moving out from there. Exactly. Yes. What's another thing that stood out to you from the uh, the left or the opponents, rather, 
but it could be a helpful tactic. Well, they're very tenacious. They're very relentless. They persevere. They never give up. How many of you have had the experience this month, June, the beginning of pride season, whereby you log onto Twitter or Facebook and among the first comments you see by the mainstream media is something to do with the pride movement. It's just exhausting. It's like, why? Every single other article seems to be about this topic from every angle you can possibly imagine. And if it's not about that, it's about black people being suppressed or it's about indigenous rights or it's about the bad people called colonialists that all those woke topics that are constantly being pushed out into the public sphere they're relentless about it and that's how they wear you down so what we need to do is push back and be equally relentless keep tweeting keep preaching <laughs> Keep promoting, keep writing, keep confronting, keep proclaiming. Now, I'm not opposed to people fleeing under certain circumstances. There, there are instances in scripture where, you know, if they don't listen to you in one city, you shake the dust off and move to the next. If they persecute you in one city, you flee to the next. But I believe too many Christians flee too fast. We just don't seem to have the capacity to persevere like we should maybe because we're scared of a little bit of pressure. Well, I would just say, be relentless. Don't give up because some law is passed, supposedly banning you from saying what you need to say, threatening you with hate speech fines. Ignore them, push forward. Another example of this is I'm seeing, uh, during COVID, we had this whole cultural phenomenon rise up whereby suddenly you can have any meeting on zoom so we now have zoom courts mm -hmm. we have zoom church and now we've had a couple situations there was a board meeting in our own county and i think there was com some confusion about the nature of this meeting so i'm not going to comment on the nature of the meeting but there was a board meeting here in essex county where a bunch of people showed up and they publicly debated some of the officials and the meeting kind of went sour and they closed the meeting down and, and sent the citizens out. And of course, of course, as is the MO of public officials, later they said they didn't feel safe. It's, it's so exhaustingly, nauseatingly gross. We didn't feel safe because people disagreed with us basically. So then they said, we're gonna reschedule the meeting because they have to have this meeting, but it's gonna be on Zoom. So just hit the pause button. Just think about that for a moment. Second example, the Greater Windsor-Essex uh, Community um, uh, School Board. School board. Yep. They've had a lot of parents come and, and decry the push towards the trans agenda in schools. So guess what they're doing now? The next meeting, they said effectively, I think June 14th, the next meeting is going to be on live stream. Only people... Uh, who our teachers or board members are allowed to attend. Why do they do this? Now they can control. They can just turn the mic off, turn the mic on. They're controlling the opposition. Mm -hmm. They don't want opposition. And of course, again, oh, we don't feel safe. We don't feel safe. And that's deliberate language, by the way, a little sidebar. Because we live in a culture where people are entitled to safety and security, but it's a bit of a subjective thing as to what it means to feel safe or not. 
Like I could just say, Chris, I don't feel safe in front of you right now. <laughs> and it automatically puts you on the defensive and yeah. me, me on the, uh, the high ground. Mm -hmm. And these institutions are doing this deliberately to silence dissent. So we have that. We have speech laws being challenged. Uh, we have free speech, the, the demise of free speech and culture. And we might think, man, we're, we're losing. If we can't attend the board meeting or during lockdowns, we're forbidden from protesting. I was charged for showing up at a peaceful protest to protest the fact that we're under lockdown, but you're not allowed to protest, but no one answers your letters. Like they paint, they try to push you into a corner. Mm -hmm. So what you need to do is you just need to resist. You need to be relentless and you're resisting. You, you just keep speaking the truth. If they don't let you in the meeting, you find another way of speaking the truth. I remember many years ago watching, um, it's a really good movie called Enemy at the Gates. And it's, it's, it's a World War, um, I was going to say World War II, but um, yeah, World War II film where the, the Russians are trying to defend Stalingrad from the Germans. And there's a scene where by the Russian soldiers are about to be sent in to do battle with the German troops and they don't have anywhere near as enough rifles. So they're basically giving rifles to every second or third guy. And this, uh, the commanding officer is basically yelling, go, go, go. And when one guy falls, you pick up his rifle and you shoot. And when he falls, someone else picks up his rifle and he shoots. And when he falls, you know, someone else picks up his rifle and he shoots. So that wouldn't go over very well in modern warfare, whereby you, you see yourself as that expendable. I, uh, but I, I just thought that that there is tenacity. Mm -hmm. It's like if you get killed, the next guy will pick up your weapon and he will continue to attack the enemy. And if you get killed, he'll pick up his weapon and continue to attack the weapon, the, the, the enemy. So if you get canceled, find another way to say what you need to say. If you get blocked from the meeting, continue to protest in another venue. Don't give up. Don't let your opponents silence you. And if you get taken out, someone else can take up the flag and march forward. Now, in order for this to happen, there's three things that have to be present in your life. You need to be prayerful because you need to be, you need to have the strength of the Lord. No question about it. Your natural flesh will tempt you to self-protect. We are incredibly yes. self-protective. And we need to pray that the Lord would give us supernatural courage. You need to choose to be fearless, and that comes with the help of the Lord. But just think about it logically. What are you afraid of? What are they going to do? The worst they could do is take your body. But they can't take your soul. It belongs to the Lord. So be fearless. Don't worry about fines and tickets and charges and public slander and persecution. Do the right thing. And this requires, it's the third thing, you have to be principled. You have to be principled. Nothing wrong with the measure of pragmatics, meaning strategy, strategic thinking, trying to figure out when is this a worthwhile fight? When is it worthwhile advancing? When is it worthwhile retreating? But we need more principled people who can articulate their principles, the things they will die for, the things they will not fudge on, and continuing to push forward. So not only do we want to see more people unashamed about what they believe, believe, 
not just in the private realm, but in the public realm. But we also need to see people become more tenacious, more relentless, less willing to back down, to cut and run, continue to take ground for Christ. Really, really important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that reminds me of Galatians 6, where it talks about don't be weary of doing well or well-doing, right? In due season, you'll reap if you do not give up. And it might take a generation or two. The seeds we're planting, Chris, right now may not bear fruit, although I am seeing some good things happening, but they may not bear fruit in the moment. We have a Christian school. That's a multi-year process. When you're educating a grade one, two, three student, you're not expecting that in two years, you're going to have some cultural apologist at your disposal that's going to take territory mm -hmm. for Christ. It's a long-term process, even though at the same time, people grow up quickly. Yeah. But it's a long-term strategic process. Yep, for sure. What else is it? What I, well, you mentioned language earlier uh, in the in one of the tactics, and so maybe speak to the language component. I, I watch the language that the cultural Marxists use, and they've almost created their own dictionary. And the dictionary is primarily designed to put their opponents on the defensive and to denigrate and to stigmatize their opponents. I am not advocating that we then create our own language that is deceptive and dishonest like that. However, language like phobic, how often when I was growing up when someone used the word phobic or phobia? Very, very rarely. But now this word has been attached to all sorts of other words, transphobic, homophobic, whatever it might be. And it, it, it's, I asked a lawyer a while ago, like, does this have any legal standing? And it's kind of a airy fairy language, but it's very effective. It, like, are you afraid of us? Mm -hmm. No one wants to say, oh yeah, I'm afraid. Mm -hmm. It's like, are you afraid of gays? Are you afraid of lesbians? Not at all, but that's the language is constantly applied. Bigotry, that's a word I've seen a lot, especially this week on social media. If you speak out against the transgender movement, even if you're speaking out against kids transitioning or having a different identity at school that their parents are unaware of, you're called a bigot, which is, <laughs> it's a crazy thought that any culture anywhere would accept that kids can have an identity at school that their parents aren't aware of at home. Mm. But you're a bigot if that's a, if you have a problem with that, you're a bigot, which basically means 99.9999999% of people that have ever lived in human history are apparently suddenly bigots. They use that language. You're anti, it's never pro, you're anti-choice, you're anti-trans, you're anti-LGBTQ, you're anti-whatever, you're anti-indigenous. What, what are you talking about? Have you actually heard our views on these issues we have a, pro a proactive message but again chris i will say there's an element of truth in that yep. because if christians only speak out against mm -hmm. and never speak out for god's laws in culture and in life well then you're going to be anti you're going to be judgmental all the time mm -hmm. so in our in our ministry we try to be both reacting to the tactics and strategies of our enemies, but also proactively building up our people and speaking to our audience, presenting them, you know, something as simple as have more babies. Mm -hmm. That's pro-life. Yep. 
Have more babies. That's pro-life. Get married young. That's pro-life. That's procreational. Go to church. <laughs> Christ is, has absolute lordship over the church. These are proactive messages. And I think we can learn a bit from our opponents. They, they adopt the language. And then on top of that, they have training courses. There's whole systems of training courses that are used in various corporations and businesses to teach you how to be, quote, unquote, respectful mm -hmm. of the woke agenda. They've been... Somebody actually had to plan this out and develop organizations and go to these businesses and say, hey, are you going to participate in this season? Are you going to speak out against colonialism in your place of employment? And you get grades for it. They've developed charities whereby they solicit money from citizens to fund all sorts of organizations to promote the cultural Marxist agenda. They have logos, they have a flag, they have lingo that they use. And it's it's kind of standardized language across the board where you hear it uh, for the same kind of language being used by the, the, the media organizations, the provincial leadership of our provinces, the federal leadership, state level leadership, presidents, it's everywhere. And they've successfully in, infiltrated all levels of society with a curriculum that in and of itself is nonsense and it's based upon lies. Well, we have a good message and we need to bring the word of God and the laws of God back to bear. And we should use good language over and over again. I, I think one of the things we like to talk about is the absolute lordship of Christ over the ministry and worship of the church. We just say it over and over again. If I'm in interviews, I'll say it. We believe in the absolute lordship of Christ over the ministry and worship of the church. Someone else asks you a question. We believe in the absolute lordship of Christ over the ministry and worship of the church. Why do I repeat myself? Because I don't have any other words at my disposal. No, because it's a way of catechizing people. Mm -hmm. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. He's King of Kings. He's Lord of Lord. That kind of language. Just say it over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. Um, creatures don't apologize to other creatures. What the creator has said, you're catechizing people. The mission of God is the glory of God. The mission of God is the glory of God. You're catechizing people. You're putting language out there that they can take with them mm -hmm. and use. And it's really important that we do that. And fortunately, our language is true and pure and righteous and biblical and blesses people. And it's not dishonest. Mm -hmm. But the point I want to drive home is... Let's use good language. And over time, I'm sure we've all found this. We might be using language and later we discover, he actually found even more precise language. Let's bring that to bear. Take, for example, you're driving through a McDonald's drive through which I don't do too often, but I remember going through one last year. And I looked up as I was waiting to make a payment and there was a flag on the window that said, love is love. Well, how often have we heard that? Mm-hmm. Now, it in and of itself, it's nonsense. Hope is hope. Black is black. White is white. Whatever. It, it, you don't define a word by a word. Mm -hmm. It's nonsense. It doesn't actually have any substance to it. But it's genius marketing because I know what it's meant to communicate. Mm -hmm. Love is whatever you want it to be. Mm-hmm. And that's how, and it's loose enough that you can kind of make it mean whatever you want it to mean. 
So, as Christians, how often do we actually say God is love? And then define that for people. God is love. See, the antithesis to God is love is love is love. It's actually a lie. Love isn't love. You don't, you don't, you don't have the capacity to determine the meaning of love apart from knowing your creator. God is love, which means he is both the ultimate definition, the foundation, and the example of what love is. We've done a very poor job, I think, as a Christian church, and I'm not talking about our church in particular or any particular church, but the Christian church has, has shied away from, in public, from declaring the meaning of God as love, helping people to understand that God is love, and then referencing the crucifixion and, sac crucifixion and sacrificial work of Christ to bring content to that. And we've just allowed love to become this nebulous, nonsensical, meaningless, airy-fairy, fluffy term that now is being weaponized mm -hmm. against the God who actually is love. So I think we need to do a better job in creating and using simple language effectively, and let's not be afraid of repeating ourselves mm -hmm. in that process. Now, as you say that, the one thing that comes to my mind is that Christians can often soften their language towards serious sin in a desire to, I don't know if it's accommodate, not necessarily accommodate, but to not offend people. So for example, you may have somebody that's participating in gay marriage and we even actually call it gay marriage, which it's not marriage. So we're using imprecise language. We would say that's debauchery is really what it is. That's but, a good point. Yeah. But we don't want to say that because you kind of, we, so we soften our language and they become more harsh with their mm. language. Whereas it's biblical. It's even, I see some people using the language of sodomy and many people bristle at that. Like, don't, don't say that, but that's language. It's biblical. It's yeah. truthful, right? It's biblical and it's historical. In fact, I am curious whether the CBC reporter, when he talked about going into Trinity Bible chapel and he said something about the past used a slur, I, I kind of suspect if that that's the word sodomy, that he would hear that as a slur, but it's not actually a slur. Mm -hmm. I mean, it comes from a place named Sodom mm -hmm. and Gomorrah, and it was the historical word used for, for uh, homosexuality, homosexual sex, to be specific. Mm -hmm. But it is, it is a stigmatized word. Now, th there are words that are a bit harsh that we don't necessarily need to use. Like, I, I remember a couple years ago, the Toronto Star posted an article and it talked about them having a dyke march in Toronto, like D-Y-K-E. I didn't even know people used that word anymore. I thought it was maybe a bit foul, but it's used of lesbians, I guess. So I had reposted the article and I put something about a dyke march and people are like, you shouldn't use that word. And then I was actually... Um, banned or what do they call it like frozen on facebook for oh, a week or two because okay. uh, because someone reported that i used the word dyke but i was actually using the word that was in the headline that the toronto star and i 
a week or two ago, I saw that they used that la that language again in another article. So apparently, this is language that some people feel comfortable with. I'm not sure I would use it. Mm -hmm. I would use the word sodomy because it has biblical origins to it and historical meaning to it. Good point uh, you make there about marriage. It's it's not marriage. It's a, it's a cheap knockoff of marriage. There was a story that came out today about a professor from the U.S. who I, I didn't read the article. I just said something like was having sex in public with his dog or something. And someone made a comment, well, it's not actually even sex. And hmm. and you're right. it's That's not sex. Hmm. So we have to be careful not to allow words that have moral import and biblical content to them to be hijacked by people with a radically different morality. They take those words, they redefine them, and then they give them back to us, and now we have to use them on their terms. Mm. It's We have to be very aware of how that can take place. Yep. For instance, if someone says, I don't believe that Jesus is God. Well, the first thing you should say instead of debating the deity of Christ is, well, then you aren't worshiping the Jesus I worship. That's a completely different Jesus. Mm -hmm. In the same way, if someone says two people of the same sex are married, well, just a sec. No, that's actually not marriage. You're not, well, I'm not going to permit you to steal our language and define it however you want, because then it makes communication impossible and confusion reigns. So that's a, I think that's an insightful point that you've made, Chris. Yeah. Well, and I think it maybe ties into where you want to go next in terms of language is one kind of symbol we could say, but they've used other things that Christians have historically held up and twisted them. Yeah. So I don't, I don't want to spend too much time in this, but they do make an effective use of symbols, and 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 I think we should too. So they, now they they steal. The devil always steals. He's he's not he's not a creator, so he always steals that which is God's and tries to reuse it for his purposes. Our opponents have stolen the rainbow, and I know there's talk about the six colors or seven colors. I wouldn't make too much of that. The the point is is that they've stolen the rainbow, which is biblically God's sign that he will not destroy the earth again. It's a promise from God that he will not destroy the earth again uh, through a global flood. And that's been used now as a symbol of quote unquote diversity with almost like each stripe representing various sexual preferences in society, various identities in society. And by the way, just as a sidebar, have you noticed as well that that these movements started off with pleas from people to sit, uh, asking for the right to be able to have sex to commit a sexual act with such and such. Now it's become an identity, mm -hmm. almost like race. It's like you you can't you don't choose to be born white, black. You don't choose these things. It's innate to your. Eth ethnic heritage. Now they've taken your sex acts and made them identity words. It's part and parcel of who you are, right? So this is a, a sleight of hand mm -hmm. to also try to to, to win the um, the uh, the argument. So we have the pride flag. Well, 
How many Christians would feel comfortable flying the Christian flag on the flagpole up front of their home? Oh, I don't know. What, what are people going to think? They're going to know I'm a Christian. I think a lot of people would, their initial response would be, that makes me feel a little uncomfortable. How many of you would feel comfortable walking through the mall with a t-shirt on with a Bible verse on it? In church, it's fine. Mm -hmm. It's almost like you want to kind of hide that because you're going to start getting some looks. It's so weird. How many of you would walk through a public university holding your Bible? A lot of people feel somehow uncomfortable. And it's a strange thing with Christian symbols, Christian flags in public. Now, I'm not, I'm not a fan of signs and symbols becoming idolatrous. Yep. We don't want to idolize them. We're not bowing down to them. But at the same time, we want to be comfortable being able to publicly de declare uh, our faith into the public realm. And so whether we're printing t-shirts or putting Christian flags up or uh, publishing music, I suppose, could be kind of in that realm. Maybe not so much of a symbol, but it's ways we need to think of ways to publicly declare who we are. I did a little, uh, had a little logo done up for this month that people have on social media. It's a, it's a Canadian flag because I want to, I want to speak to not just Christians but non-Christians alike. That says this flag is inclusive enough right. because there's this movement that if you, oh, if you're really going to be inclusive, even if you're not a fan of this particular sexual lifestyle, shouldn't all inclusive people fly the flag? Know? And that's another lie intended to manipulate and deceive. Mm -hmm. yeah. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned earlier the uh, Greater Essex County District School Board and these meetings and whatnot just brought up the thought of children. I know um, that is definitely one of the strategies used by our opposition is to go after the children. So maybe speak to that a bit. I mean, they they are making no qualm. They're not even trying to hide it. They're not even trying to hide it. They are deliberately and strategically targeting our children. They are in our schools. They are in bed with the boards of education. In some senses, literally in bed with members of the board of education. They are putting on drag shows in public libraries, in day schools, in front of children in public settings. Now, for the life of me, I don't understand why you go to a drag show, even if you're an adult who didn't know Christ. But it is historically unheard of in the West for this rampant attempt to sexualize our children. And I am thankful that there are many non-Christians that are speaking out against mm -hmm. it. But what does all this indicate? You don't see them in nursing homes having drag shows. They're not even as likely to be on the university campuses as they are in the grade schools because they know that if they can get the next generation when they're in those very formative years, they will get the whole next generation mm -hmm. on board. So they're, they have a strategy. Let's go after our children. In the province of New Brunswick, the premier there just passed a law to the effect that you cannot allow children to identify as a certain gender in school without parental knowledge. Well, according to our prime minister, you're, you're a deplorable if you do that. Hmm. Well, I'm, I'm thankful that uh, he's being so open about his beliefs because now we know where he stands and we knew it all along. 
he is not in favor of parental authority over their children. And they're not even being shy about it. Well, now we live at a point in history. So let me just back up and say this. My children, who are all now adults, went to a Christian school through elementary. Almost all of them finished that process. We then moved. A couple of them finished up the last part of elementary in a public school. Then most of them went through a Catholic school system for high school. And there was a reason for that at the time why we did that. And that got so bad that our last one finished in uh, a homeschooling environment. But things have so rapidly changed since Susie and I were making those decisions for our kids. I wouldn't even dream of having them in a public school for a single day, much less a Catholic high school. I wouldn't even think about it. Just, it wouldn't even be an option for me. The poison that they are being exposed to is so relentless. I don't have, I wouldn't have enough time at the end of the day to debrief my children and make sure they hadn't drank some of that poison mm. as a result of seven or eight hours of, of education. So we need to be proactive, thinking long-term in the area of Christian education. And since one of the main ways that kids are educated, apart from educational processes in the church, I think it's a huge mistake, this whole integrated model of church that I hear people talking about, I think it's a huge mistake. I think there should be plenty of places in the local church for adults and children and people of all ages to intermingle and interact and be blessed and worship together. But I also think there is a place and time for specific targeted education in the context of a church directed specifically at children delivered in a way that's appropriate to their age and to their understanding of things. If you have a different opinion on that, don't bother emailing me because you're not going to change my mind. But Apart from that, what about the day-to-day -day educational requirements of, of children? Now, it's got to a point where, I mean, I'd rather a kid be illiterate mm. than literate in wokeology or yeah. cultural yeah, Marxism. Yeah, totally. But parents need to find a way to take full responsibility for educating their children. Now, you can do that through homeschooling, which is, rel it's a lot of work. It's relatively inexpensive. It's a lot of work. And we're, we're fans of that. And we applaud people who are doing it. Now, by the way, if you're a homeschooler, could I just kindly say this? If you're doing the home, but not the schooling, that's a problem. So don't be the lazy homeschooling parent that doesn't actually teach your kids. And now the kids are getting into grade five, six, seven, and eight and you discover they're practically illiterate. If you're being irresponsible in teaching your children the basic subjects of education, you're, you're gonna draw the attention eventually of the government and you're gonna make it bad for everyone mm -hmm. who, who's taking advantage of alternative education options. So please don't be the lazy parent that just has the kids sitting in front of the television doing nothing or waiting to ask a question. Hey mom, could you tell me about participles. Oh, there's my, I've been waiting for you to ask me this for eight <laughs> years. Have a curriculum, have a schedule, have a plan, have some accountability and take your children through a robust educational process. And then there are Christian, other uh, Christian schools. So Christian schools are basically just Christian parents. You could think of it this way, collections of families that get together and, you know, pick the cream of the crop to provide that basic seminal education for their kids. And I, I will issue this one warning. 
okay? And this might step on some toes, but maybe your toes need to be stepped on, okay? And it's this. Some education that's called Christian, some Christian education, we'll call it, is really nothing more than a secular education in a safe place with Christian teachers. I think, well, isn't that a Christian education? No, the, the goal of educating your children is not strictly to keep them safe and around Christians. That's not a prop. If that's your view, if your view is, I just want to get my kids through math, English, the sciences, and keep them safe. I want to keep them away from the boogeyman. Chances are they're going to grow up and they're going to be exposed to all the crap in the world around them, all the ideologies. And at some point, it's going to become so overwhelming. They're going to buy into that stuff. And all of those tens of thousands of dollars of education that you put in to teaching them math and science and literature by Christian teachers in a safe place is going to go out the window. And you'll have people that look and smell and act a lot like the world. Mm -hmm. So if, if you're picking a Christian school, and, and I hope this is a challenge to Christian schools that maybe aren't quite there yet to get their act together. A Christian education is an education within which the whole curriculum is laced with Christ. So you're actually teaching math and language and sciences and the arts from a distinctly Christian perspective, not just by Christian teachers, but the curriculum itself is embedded with the DNA of the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, kids are taught to think about all of life from a Christian perspective. Christ is the one that the Bible tells us upholds the universe by the power of his word. You can't explore the universe, the systems, the linguistic realities of the universe around us without Christ and have a proper, well-rounded education. We also want, and this is in line with the classical model, it's not like you can't be a Christian if your kids aren't in a classical school, but I'm just, I, I think from a pedagogical perspective, there's a lot of wisdom in it. Knowledge, understanding, and then the ability to communicate, defend, and debate it. Like that, that seems pretty logical to me. Mm -hmm. Now, I was in a public school back in the 70s and 80s for elementary and in a Catholic school for grade 9 to 11 and then finished up again in a public school because we moved. And... We were, we were taught subjects, but we were never, so it was information dump, information dump. We were never, I don't ever remember being, having a conversation with my teachers about why we're learning this. So for, to use an example, yeah. French. I just didn't want to learn French. Why do I want to learn French? I don't know anybody that speaks French. I lived in inland Ontario where there was a microscopic Francophone population. I didn't have any understanding of any French ancestry. I've now discovered that I do have a little bit. It just, there was no motivation. There was no reason why I would want to learn French. Now I regret that if someone had said, Aaron, and this is just an example, learning other languages, learning to, learning to communicate with other people in another language, even stretching yourself intellectually to learn to think in a different language. Learning a second language also helps you to become more well-versed in your own grammar and English grammar. Oh, okay. I, I might've been a little more motivated to learn that, that subject. And then if on top of that, they'd said, 
You know, the Bible talks about doing everything as unto the Lord, whether you eat or drink. There is something distinctively Christian about thinking clearly, about learning, about digesting information, about having to study for exams and ha having to study tests. I didn't know that, Chris. Mm -hmm. And so I bombed out in grade nine and I finished something like a 55% in French. Yeah. And that happened time and time again. I think that was my lowest grade, but <laughs> in other subjects, I was naturally more interested. But the point is, I don't want any kids in our school to ever have that mindset. I want them to yep. be learning information, to understand the reason and purposes of it, and how they can actually glorify God through that and just drive that home over and over and over and over again. And I think at the end of the day, you just get a better student. So you only have one kick at the can, mom and dad, to educate your children in the mm -hmm. ways of the Lord. Please don't be lazy Please don't make the decision strictly upon money. I remember when my wife and I were trying to educate our kids, we were flat broke. I mean, I couldn't drive through. When I was a young pastor, I couldn't go through the drive through and buy a medium coffee for a dollar and 10 cents without budgeting that in advance. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was that tight. But the Lord laid it upon our hearts at the time to educate our children in a Christian institution. And lo and behold, Someone came forward to help us with it, and we're grateful for that. So if the Lord lays it upon, if the Lord has given you children, and you don't have the means in and of yourselves to pay for that education, first of all, try to increase your income. That's always step number one. You reduce your debt, you increase your income. But if not, have a conversation with your church. Have a conversation with grandma and grandpa or Uncle Bob or ask around, chat with your pastor. If the Lord, the Lord doesn't want your children. He didn't give your children to you to then have them raised by the Antichrist. So we need to trust him, a Lord, that he will provide a way. But it starts with it's a parent, like getting it. Oh, the, the light went on. It's a eureka moment. Yes, I know I went through public school and I quote unquote turned out fine, mm -hmm. but it's a different world. It's a different world. And so we need to be very, very, very proactive in teaching our kids. And that goes right through youth pastors. You have to t address these issues head on. No beating around the bush. Deal with the issues that young people are dealing with. Instruct them in the ways of the Lord. We have to be very, very, very proactive. If you're an older pastor, I know what it's like. Oh, I'm just going to sort of hang with the people that are like me. You know, if you're 50, I just hang out with 50 year olds. If I'm 60, I hang out with 60 year olds. Everyone in the local church should be keenly interested, even if it's just on the level of prayer with the next generation. That's right. The next generation to set their sights in the children's ministry, the youth ministry and say, we just are passionate about training up a generation of choice, choice warriors for Christ. Mm -hmm. It starts in the home, but it also should be reflected in the corporate interests and sentiments of the church. Yeah. And not to mention, it's also... Uh, strategic but efficient in terms of your utilization of resources. It takes a lot less effort to put a child onto the right path than to correct an adult off the right path That's or off good. the wrong path, right? That's good. Yeah. So if we have if we have counseling ministry and all sorts of crisis ministries in our church, most of it should be geared towards people that didn't grow up in the church that are coming in and yes. finding new life in Christ. The church, if we're doing a good job, we shouldn't be spending all kinds of time counseling people who are raised in Christian homes, but weren't really raised in Christianized homes. Yeah. So it's a, it's a long-term strategic uh, plan. Yeah, that's right. Now, if I had been back in your grade school, I would have told you, Aaron, you should learn French 
because then you can become the prime minister of Canada. <laughs> <laughs> that would help you. <laughs> Announcing that his candidacy. Be, that, <laughs> that would be quite the thing. I mean, yeah. that would be the last guy they'd want to elect. <laughs> but, okay, let's, let's finish it out. What's one final thing that you can think of that we can learn from our opposition? Well, they want to dominate. They want to dominate the the state, the wokeites, the cultural Marxists. They can they can play the tolerance card, the inclusivity card, all they want. That's all smoke and mirrors. They want to dominate. They want to be the sole narrative. It's all false advertising. It's like, hey, you're a bigot if you don't fly our flag. It's like, dude, that's bigotry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're for, you're bullying me. Don't bully people. You're bullying me. Yeah. Like, what is wrong with you? You cannot see how hypocritical you are about it. They want to dominate. And you know what? Every worldview wants to dominate. Now, to be very clear and precise, it's not the goal of the Christian church to in and of itself dominate culture. That's not our goal. But we do want to see the domination of Christ, the dominion of Christ over all things. It's already all under his feet. He he has conquered our ancient foe. The full manifestation of that has not yet been seen, but he has conquered our ancient foe. So we want Christ's dominion to be evident. How can any Christian say we wouldn't prefer to have Christ's economic plans reflected in public mm -hmm. economic plans or Christ's view of human value, especially in the womb, reflected in how we treat unborn babies. How, how could we possibly argue against that? Christ is a benevolent God and we want his dominion. As our motto says that he might have dominion from sea to shining sea. Well, it doesn't say shining. I threw that in there, but it sounds better <laughs> from sea to sea. Um, we want that to be manifested in our culture. Now here's what we have in our, our, um, our disposal that our opponents don't have. Here's what they could learn from us. Intellectual honesty. We speak the truth. We don't manipulate people. We don't reinvent language for our own purposes. We also have the advantage of an unchanging authority. Mm -hmm. I don't have to sit down and ponder and meditate. Hmm, I wonder what God thinks about human sexuality. I heard a very sad story a couple of weeks ago of a, a local church pastor by a man that I had uh, mentored uh, in our church years ago, who kind of wandered off, who's now full blown in favor of the radical sex agenda and posted in his church's website an apology uh, for how churches have used theology, for example, against the LGBTQ community. I'm like, are you kidding me? You're apologizing for God? How blasphemous is that? God's word doesn't change, but it's this, it's, it's this language of, well, we're... He's, he's deflecting. It's like the church has treated you bad. No, we haven't. If anything, we haven't spoken the truth more clearly. If, if the church of Jesus Christ has anything to apologize for, it's for its absence mm -hmm. in the public square, not for its presence in the public square. It's for its lack of sermons, not for its sermons. It's for its lack of social engagement, not for its social engagement. Mm -hmm. If anything, we've been far too quiet and far too passive. And there's theological reasons for that, like a gospel that's been truncated down to an escape plan. 
a, there's cowardice, there's radical individualism, radical autonomy that many people buy into, where it's just, it's just me and Jesus hanging out, waiting to get to heaven. I don't need, the, let the world go to hell in a handbasket kind of a mindset, that sort of thing. But we have intellectual honesty, we have an unchanging authority. Here's, here's one thing that's quite fascinating. We actually have science on our side. We have science on our side. No way. In the gender debate, we have science on our side. Men and women reproduce. Two women don't reproduce. They have to borrow from heterosexuals to reproduce. Uh, in terms of the, the sex act, in, in terms of human sex, the safest form of human sexual con contact is between a husband and wife in a covenant of marriage. Mm -hmm. That'll keep you safe. You don't have to worry about diseases, sexually transmitted diseases. If you've both been chased, you don't have to worry about that. That's where children come from. That's where stability come from. Children get to benefit from looking at a man who acts like a man and a woman that acts like a woman and benefit from those two very distinct but complementary roles. Mm -hmm. That's a beautiful thing. Men are made in the image of God, that's a theological statement. Women are made in the image of God, that's a theological statement. But look at the biological sciences, XY, XX. There's men and there's women. Mm -hmm. Science is on our side. Transgenderism is anti-science. We also have history on our side, Chris. These kinds of ideologies, old Marxism failed and destroyed millions of people in the process. Mm -hmm. Yes, Cultural Marxism will fail but it'll destroy millions of people in the process. All these woke ideologies, they will destroy people. They will destroy economies. They, they will destroy families. Unfortunately, human beings tend to have to learn the hard way. Mm -hmm. They tend to have to learn the hard way. And uh, maybe that needs to happen. But in the meanwhile, we're gonna continue to do our job to speak the truth and we can learn from our opponents and hopefully put some of their full bravery into practice yeah, with real. and take ground for Christ. Awesome. Good word. Good stuff. Well, thank you, Aaron. And thanks to our listeners again for tuning in this week. Hopefully you found it helpful. And if you have, we didn't, and even if you haven't, I'm sure somebody else will benefit from it. So share it. <laughs> so share it out. Um, make sure to, to rate it on the podcast platforms where we host it. If you can, that helps to, uh, to get it in front of more people. A reminder, you can find this podcast both on the pursuitofglory.org website, a, a personal resourcing site of Pastor Aaron's, as well as over on the on the, the Fight, Laugh, Feast app and their uh, companion website, where there's lots of other great resources to download. We hope you'll tune in next week to another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Rock.